0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, the 8th of August. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Undocumented immigrants in the U.S. who want to play by the rules have to go home to file papers. We'll hear about one man's dangerous journey.
1: There were some times where he would be walking and there would be cops all over. He'd be like, what's going on? And there'd be like a dead body.
0: Also today, a gang truce holds in El Salvador and an Iranian rock star sets the Quran to music.
2: Quran has absolutely beautiful lyrics. Quran as an artwork
0: is unbelievable. But the music is banned at home.
3: The world is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There are conflicting reports today of heavy fighting in Syria's largest city, Aleppo. Government forces have entered one part of the city, and battles are being fought on the narrow streets. Both sides are claiming victories. Achilles Dimitrio is in a northern section of Aleppo now. He's a freelance photojournalist, and he says people in Aleppo are expecting a larger assault, and they're desperate to get out.
4: Many civilians already left. Uh, Whoever is in Aleppo city right now is trying to get out. But you have to understand that many people, many civilians from Aleppo city that I talked to, they don't have the money to get out from the city. Gas prices, petrol prices during the last six months skyrocketed. Two days ago, I spoke with with a man, in Aleppo city, who told me that he sent his family away from the city, but he didn't have enough money to pay for his own ticket. So he's left back there in their house, praying for the best.
0: Um, Achilles, can you tell us about one particular person who you've met, perhaps one of the fighters or a civilian who's there around Aleppo?
4: Okay, so uh, three days ago I was taken inside Salaheddin area and uh, there I had the opportunity to talk with a 19-year-old medical student who joined the Free Syrian Army about nine months ago. He told me that he joined the revolution because he felt guilty because his father is working as a policeman for the Syrian uh, state. And then I asked him if he had any communication with his family or if he went home to see them. And he told me that at the moment, if he went back home, his father would kill him.
0: And so does this young man understand what his father, who is a policeman uh, under the Syrian government, what he is fighting for?
4: I think he does. And because he disagrees with that, he decided to join the Free Syrian Army.
0: Uh, Achilles, is there an image or a couple of images that you have taken that you think illustrate best what's happening there?
4: Yes, there are. Um, two days ago, I was in uh, Sheikh Najjar area uh, where uh, the army sent two fighter jets to target the FSA command center in that area. One of the bombs missed the command center and hit a residential uh, building just behind the command center, leveling the building to the ground and uh, killing 10 people inside. The only survivor was uh, the father of one of the families in there who lost his wife, two sons, and daughter. And I took pictures of this father in... Uh, a condition of shock, trying to understand and realize what just happened.
0: The in in a case like that, uh, I guess you feel relegated to only taking pictures, uh, as much as they may tell the rest of the world. Was there anything else? Were you were you asked to do anything else? Could you help in any way?
4: Lisa, I'm here to take pictures. I believe it's very important uh, for the world outside to see what is happening here. You do have a lot of uh, activist material online, but we both know that uh, it's very difficult to confirm. So I think at the moment, each journalist, photographer, videographer, working for foreign media and is in Syria at the moment, is very important to be here and uh, do the job he came in here to do.
0: That's freelance photojournalist Achilles Dimitriou in Aleppo. Aleppo has faced shelling since the Free Syrian Army rebels seized control of much of the city three weeks ago. The human rights group Amnesty USA has collected satellite images to document the use of heavy weaponry in and around Aleppo. Scott Edwards is Amnesty's director of crisis prevention response in Washington.
5: We were very concerned with talks about some impending, decisive battle in Aleppo, Syria's largest city. So we wanted to do an assessment of what heavy military hardware was around there and essentially identify what the risk was to civilians. And if the actions of the security forces, if the unbridled nature in which they put down peaceful protests would transfer over into how they would conduct military operations in this populous city, uh, that's of great concern.
0: There are some photos that show hundreds of black dots on the ground, which your military analysts call probable artillery impact. Do you know if those craters are near residential areas? And do you also have people on the ground right now from Amnesty who can confirm what you believe you're seeing?
5: So near is a relative term, of course. From the imagery, you can see that Aleppo is quite large. It's dense. It's the largest city in Syria And certainly by my estimation, the artillery impacts, the probable artillery impacts appear quite close to civilian areas. And again, those 600 yellow dots and the impact craters that have been identified are are the ones that meet some threshold. So surely uh, it's an undercount, if anything. Just as a a practical rule, we're very careful not to comment on ground research and sort of where our researchers are for security purposes. Um, But what I can say is the, the benefit to using remote sensing and satellite technology is anyone could access this imagery and you can conduct the same analysis. And that's incredibly powerful, especially if we're thinking ahead to how this evidence, evidence of crimes that that satellite imagery might show could be used in court, because of course a key portion of that is the evaluation of it by both sides.
0: So what kind of hardware then did you find in the photos?
5: We identified within Aleppo and around Aleppo 58 tanks, We identify 45 armored personnel carriers and infantry fighting vehicles and 28 towed artillery, 21 self-propelled artillery. So just a lot of firepower in and around Aleppo. The images themselves were collected over uh, July 23rd to August 1st and certainly the reports that that we're seeing from the ground today are quite troubling.
0: Uh, Quite troubling in the the fact that there is an impending attack, or are you saying uh, that this hardware is already being used?
5: I can't confirm that. I'm I'm only seeing media reports at the moment. What I can say is that the purpose of using this, this technology, we want to make it very clear to actors on the ground whether this impending assault, this final decisive battle has begun today or will tomorrow or or has a week ago, that whether UN monitors happen to be in Aleppo, that right now Syria is one of the most heavily imaged with satellites, places on Earth, people are watching. And it's perfectly conceivable that we can recreate what units we're operating where based on this imagery that's being collected almost daily. And we just want to make it very clear that all sides to the conflict have an obligation to, to protect civilians. And any actions, any use of, of hardware tactics that would fail to discriminate between civilians and legitimate targets, or even worse, the targeting of civilians and civilian infrastructure, we intend to document that. And just as what may constitute crimes against humanity that Amnesty is documented in its its ground research, we ultimately want to see accountability and justice for these crimes. And it, it should be a forewarning to those involved in the conflict that we are watching.
0: Thank you. Scott Edwards, Managing Director of Crisis Prevention and Response for Amnesty USA in Washington. Nice to speak with you. Thank you. about 150,000 Syrians have fled into Jordan in the year and a half of fighting? Jordan is overwhelmed. It's run out of space to house them. So now some of those Syrians are living in a tent city near the border. The refugees say they are enduring dust storms, scorpions, and shakedowns by camp workers. And their lives, they say, aren't a lot better than what they left behind in Syria. Dale Gavlak filed this report from the Zaatari camp.
6: For more than 3,300 Syrian refugees, the desolate scratch of desert known as Zaltari Camp is anything but home. A man named Abu Mohammed escaped from Dara, Syria, two weeks ago.
7: In addition, it stays like this, like put us in buses and take us to the borders. We're going back to Syria. There we die quickly, here we die slowly. We need everything. We need to be treated as humans, because this is not a good condition to be treated.
8: There's a
6: constant dust-laden wind that coats everything and everyone in sight, making it next to impossible to breathe or stay clean. The dust amplifies the misery of extreme heat by day and cold by night. And for refugees like 26-year-old Omnadia, the dust-filled air is dangerous. She's pregnant and has
8: asthma. I'm very sick from the weather and dust. I'm having difficulty breathing. I'm constantly coughing. But
6: what about my two young daughters? They will surely contract bronchitis or some other sort of disease themselves. Forty-year-old Abu Kamal says he and his large family made an extremely dangerous 17-hour journey on foot from Syria's easternmost town of Deir to the camp in Jordan. The Free Syrian Army shielded them along the way from bombardment and attacks from government thugs, but the camp's safety belied other
8: dangers. Hey, <laughs> Once we arrived here, uh, they
7: gave us the mattresses and the food supply, and we entered the tents. But we killed two scorpions. They have snakes. This is not the condition we used to. This is not the condition for kids. Uh, We can't go back to the tents. We're on strike here, Uh, because if we go to the uh, tents, the, the kids will die.
6: Other camp residents say workers have threatened to turn them over to Syrian security agents if they don't stop protesting the camp conditions. Zatari camp is only a little over one week old. Before the tent city, Syrian refugees stayed with Jordanian families or shared cramped apartments with other displaced Syrians. But authorities say there's no more space, and that forced them to quickly open Zatari camp. Andrew Harper of the U.N. Refugee Agency says the U.N. and Jordan are trying their best. It's a, it's a
5: very tough, terrible place to, uh, to be, but um, uh, like every day we'll, we'll make
7: it better. So that's what we've just got to keep doing. We just need everyone just to sort of remain calm and just to uh, make sure that we keep moving in the, in the right way.
6: But for the residents of Zaatari camp, a quick fix, either here in Jordan or back home in Syria, cannot come soon enough. For the world, Amdel Gavlak in Zaatari Jordan.
0: Coming up a little bit later in our program, a gang truce in El Salvador, a bicycle superhighway in Copenhagen, and the couple that dreamed of a snow-white wedding. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. It's being seen as a sign of progress in the fight against AIDS in Africa, Today in Cape Town, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton announced that the U.S. has struck a deal with South Africa. That country has the largest number of people with HIV in the world. America has spent several billion dollars on AIDS treatment and prevention there. But until now, the U.S. had not trusted the South African government to implement those programs on its own. Today, Secretary Clinton signed an agreement handing over control.
6: South Africa will become the first country in Africa to plan, manage, and pay for more of your own efforts to combat the epidemic. Well, the United States will continue to provide funding and technical support.
0: That's Hillary Clinton, who's in the midst of a nine-nation tour of Africa. The World's Language Editor, Patrick Cox, is with us right now. Patrick, Hillary Clinton is going to need a translator, at least for most of the countries she's visiting, right?
9: Well, actually, she's not, because most of those countries are English-speaking. At least the elites in countries like Ghana, Nigeria, they speak English. But let's be clear here. Most citizens of those countries do not speak English. And in Nigeria, there are more than 500 languages spoken.
0: Okay, which brings us back to this issue of AIDS prevention, the issue of language within that context, one would think would present a tremendous problem in a place like Africa.
9: Yeah, it's a huge problem and it only has recently been recognized. I spoke to the head of a group uh, called Translators Without Borders and she told me that she's visited villages in Africa where you can find brochures about AIDS prevention and safe sex and how to use a condom. The brochures are in English or French or Portuguese or one of these colonial languages, and no one in the village speaks that language.
0: Which is kind of surprising that they didn't think of that in the first place when they distributed the brochures. So what's the solution then?
9: Well, in the big picture, there are some African nations that are starting to promote their own indigenous languages, and that's helpful. For example, in Ghana, they're talking about replacing English as the official language. It really is just talk. But the idea is if they become official languages or if they share that status with English, then official documents are going to have to be written in those languages and that raises the status of the language. It would also spawn a translation industry of sorts. And that's an industry that barely exists right now.
0: You know, it's funny because I think a lot of uh, folks think that Africans are such great linguists. Many of them speak two languages or more. So this might not be a problem at all.
9: Well, it's true that they are great linguists. In a, in a country like Cameroon, it's quite common to find people who speak four or five languages. But that doesn't make you a translator. You need training to become a translator. You, need, or you also need tools like dictionaries and glossaries mm-hmm. of technical terms and you need to be online to access them. And outside of South Africa, all of that is lacking. That's at least the conclusion of a report commissioned by Translators Without Borders.
0: And you spoke to the author of that report in the latest World in Words podcast, our weekly language podcast you put together, Patrick. So what is uh, likely to happen as a result of these conclusions?
9: Well, Translators Without Borders has begun a training program for translators in Nairobi and Kenya. And, and they've started with Swahili translators simply because it's so widely spoken. There's about 40 million Swahili speakers. So there's that. There's also a project that teams up volunteer translators with Wikipedia and local mobile phone operators. The idea is to translate Wikipedia articles on subjects like malaria and AIDS and cholera into local languages and then make them accessible through people's phones. But, of course, for the time being, there are nowhere near enough volunteers for that right now.
0: Okay, The World's Patrick Cox. To hear that podcast conversation about the Translators Without Borders report on Africa, just go to theworld.org.
9: Patrick, thank you. You're welcome, Lisa.
0: It snowed yesterday in Johannesburg, South Africa. And Roy Maka and Monique Joubert, what did you guys do?
9: We got married.
0: You got married. And, in fact, here's what it sounded like. A
10: day for pronounce. You are husband and wife. Yeah.
0: That is Jacaranda FM's broadcast of your wedding. Now, Monique, we're not hearing from you because I guess you sort of lost your voice in all the excitement. Yes. Yes, (laughs) that's about all you can squeeze out. Tell us exactly how this all came about. I understand it was kind of a combination of Mother Nature snowing in Johannesburg, which it rarely does, and uh, Monique's eager sister?
10: It, It snowed about four years ago here in Johannesburg. And um, when it snowed, we said, well, we came up with the plan that the next time it snowed, we were going to get married. <laughs> Not knowing that it was going to snow yesterday. <laughs>
0: Not knowing, I wonder if that was kind of like, you know, it'll be a cold day in hell type thing.
10: <laughs> no, I don't think so.
0: So you really were sort of looking forward to it. You didn't think it was going to happen so fast, though. So then, Monique, your sister, called this radio station, Jacaranda FM, when the snow came. And what did she say?
11: Well, basically, she told him that um, we're trying to get someone to help us to get married. Sorry about my voice. And uh, they helped her out and me out.
10: Then the next thing we knew, the Jacaranda FM was calling us, and they were arranging the wedding to be done live on the air in their studios.
0: (laughs) Within how long a period of time?
10: Within three hours, they had arranged everything. They had a minister there. We had a cake. She had a dress. um, There was photographers. We had flowers. There was a car waiting for us to take us, to bring us to the hotel. It was insane. So,
0: Monique, if you can speak, did you not get to pick out your own dress? Did did the one they picked out fit?
11: I am could actually choose out of six options. So she brought quite a variety with her, and I could choose. And immediately when I saw the one, I knew it was the one. So it was pretty easy, I must say.
0: I'm curious as to whether or not you felt like this was sort of all out of your hands, and maybe that's kind of liberating. Maybe on your wedding day that's sort of what you wanted.
11: Yeah, you no, know, definitely, I must say. it. <laughs> It's crazy. It went by so quickly. Someone was helping me putting on the dress. Someone was doing my hair. Someone was putting on makeup. Like all, oh, it was
0: crazy. How about for you, Roy? What what was it like on your end for the groom?
10: It was nerve-wracking. It was Uh, nerve-wracking. I just pretty much stood around. Uh, We had been at work up until two o'clock in the afternoon. And then that's when we, we saw the snow and decided we're going to do this. So we didn't have rings. <laughs> um, and it was one of the things they were trying to get, get through to the station. But, you know, unfortunately, it didn't happen. But it's fine. We, we had other rings on. She had her engagement ring. So we used that. And then I just had one of my rings that we used.
0: That's right. Now, this was very spontaneous, but you guys were already engaged. Um, so, so you sort of had made your own vow to spend the rest of your life together, even without the snow.
10: That's correct. Yes, we were actually planning to to get married um, in April, April May next year.
0: Have you guys stopped to catch your breath and um, and kind of look at each other now and say, "Oh, we're married."
10: <laughs> I wish we could actually. We I think we're gonna do it tonight. Show Monique's crying. Um, we haven't. It's been it's been insane. We got home last night after the wedding, and we went straight to bed and fell asleep. We were exhausted. And I think tonight we we feel (laughs) the same. It's been a long day.
0: And Monique, for you?
10: She's (laughs) crying. She's crying. She can't talk right
0: now. She can't talk anyway. Congratulations. Man and wife, Roy Mocha and Monique Joubert. Monique, are you changing your name or are you going to keep Joubert? I'm changing it.
10: She's changing it.
0: So Monique Mocha.
10: That's correct.
0: Good. You guys are great. Congratulations again and thank you.
10: Thank you so much. We really appreciate everything.
0: Thank you. (laughs) You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, California's ban on shark fin soup has some restaurant chefs coming up with creative alternatives.
10: So there's a tang, or a broth, that's made with chicken and jinhua ham, Shaoxing wine, and it's also served with a black truffle custard because we need to introduce that luxury back into the dish.
3: PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, Proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co production of the BBC World Service PRI and WGBH in Boston. Every year, tens of thousands of undocumented immigrants who are married to U.S. citizens apply to live here legally. They have to return to their native countries to file the application. Then they wait. That waiting period can take months, even years, in some of the world's most dangerous countries, countries such as El Salvador. Charlie Garcia was killed there last year while he was waiting for a decision in his case. Ambar Espinosa reports.
8: Charlie Garcia entered the United States illegally 13 years ago. He made his way to Minnesota, found a job, married an American citizen, and had a son. But fearing he would be deported and permanently separated from his family, Garcia decided to play by the rules. When his son was six months old, Garcia returned to El Salvador to file paperwork. But because he had entered the United States illegally, Garcia was automatically barred from re-entering the country for 10 years so he applied for a waiver. His sister Roxana says Garcia had been in El Salvador for a year, waiting for a decision in his case.
6: Many of us even encouraged him to go back illegally, but he would say no. He always had faith that his paperwork would go through. He would say, I know that my paperwork will be approved. I know I'll rejoin my wife and see my son.
8: But Charlie Garcia never saw his family again. Roxana Garcia remembers the morning one year ago when her brother made her pancakes here in their mother's house in Santana. It was the last time she spoke to him.
6: When he was saying goodbye as I left for work, he said, when I'm gone, you're going to miss me because I'm the one who cooks for you. I thought to myself, that's a really odd thing to say.
8: Later that day, Roxana Garcia received a telephone call telling her that her brother, their cousin, and a friend had been struck by a car while they were bicycling home. She rushed to the scene and found her brother lying dead in the street near a gas station. About three miles away, police found the bodies of Garcia's cousin and friend. The police arrested a man, and he was charged with, accidentally, hitting and killing all three men. The case was closed. But Garcia's sister isn't satisfied. It wasn't an accident. It looked as if someone had shot Charlie. Roxana Garcia says when she found her brother's body, she saw bullet wounds in his head and his leg. She suspects he got caught in some random gang violence, and the authorities didn't want to investigate. El Salvador has the second highest murder rate in the world, and many of those murders are committed by gangs. An estimated 20,000 gang members terrorized the country with impunity. Santa Ana, where Garcia died, is one of El Salvador's most violent cities. Garcia's widow, Elisa, says her husband was afraid the entire time he was back there.
1: There were some times where he would be walking and there would be cops all over. He'd be like, what's going on? And there'd be like a dead body by a
8: tree or something or something. Sometimes he'd hear gunshots when he was inside the house. What happened to Charlie Garcia is not an isolated case, according to Greg Chen. He's with the American Immigration Lawyers Association in Washington.
12: Our lawyers have sent us literally dozens of examples of people who have been going through the regular process and have either been assaulted or kidnapped and killed. And we have many, many more cases of people who have just been stuck waiting for months or years because of a process right now that just doesn't make sense.
8: Those lengthy waits have prompted a proposal by the Obama administration to streamline the process. Under the plan, undocumented immigrants who marry U.S. citizens could file their waiver applications and wait for a decision in the United States. That's a bad idea, says Mark Rickorian. He's executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, which supports tighter controls on immigration.
12: If they apply for the waiver in the United States and they're turned down, then what do we do? Somebody has to go and look for them and remove them from the country, which frankly isn't going to happen.
8: Krikorian says that while cases like Charlie Garcia's are tragic, they shouldn't be used to weaken the rules.
12: It's hard to use individual sob stories as a rationale for changing the whole structure of immigration policy, and I'm afraid that's often what advocates end up doing.
8: But Charlie Garcia's widow, Alyssa, says she hopes the proposed rule change would prevent others from experiencing such a terrible loss. A decision on the rule is not expected before the end of the year. For The World, I'm Ambar Espinosa.
0: Two of El Salvador's most notorious street gangs got their start in California. The Mara Salvatrucha, or MS-13, and its rival, the 18th Street Gang, were both created by immigrants who had fled El Salvador's civil war decades ago. This past March, the Salvadoran branches of the gangs brokered a truce with help from the Catholic Church. Since then, El Salvador's murder rate has gone down. Alex Sanchez is a former member of the gang MS-13. He now directs Homies Unidos, it's a Los Angeles-based group that works with Salvadoran gang members. Sanchez says that the truce back home has reverberated in Los Angeles.
12: It's had a psychological impact because many individuals from door gangs that are immigrants that might be facing deportation or are currently in process of deportation, they are looking at this as just an opportunity for them to be able to go to, back to their country without fear and persecution by rival gangs or vigilante groups.
0: Does this mean that there are gang members in Los Angeles who now feel it is safer, regardless of the story that we just heard, it is safer to go home?
12: In some ways it is. Many individuals that are being deported, they applaud the fact that in their home countries, you know, they can walk peacefully, or at least right now, you know, there is this truth.
0: What did the two gangs agree to and how are they standing by their promises?
12: they have uh, agreed to maintain lines of communication with each other and also stopping forced recruitment as well as violence around the school area.
0: So why would gang organizers and the gang members from the upper rank to the lower agree to something like this?
12: Well, this has happened really organically. At the same time, there's been uh, harsh, oppressive policies implemented throughout Central America The zero-tolerance initiatives that basically put many of these individuals in prisons for just basically having tattoos. And you've seen the massacres uh, recently in in February in Comayagua in Honduras, where 354 members of uh, gangs were burned to death in a cell block.
0: When you were a member of uh, MS-13, how long were you part of the gang?
12: Since I was 14, and I'm 42 now, so you could say over 20 years. You know, it's been a long haul, and, and I've gotten to realize that, uh, you know, I could bring back something back to the community, and that's why I'm part of this organization called Homies Unidos.
0: Now, Homies Unidos, which is the organization that you run right now. So you work uh, very closely with Salvadoran gang members. I don't know to what extent you tell them about your own experience, but did you leave the gang when you were still in El Salvador or after you got here to the U.S.?
12: The misconception is that this gang started in El Salvador. Uh, this gang's originated in Los Angeles, in the streets of Los Angeles, by immigrant kids, for the most part, being Central American, primarily Salvadorans. I did get deported to El Salvador in 1994. I came to the United States back, and that's when uh, you know I was able to talk to some of the folks that I knew in the gang, and they gave me the pass to be able to not be engaged in all of their negative activities because I was also a single father and I was taking care of my son. And then eventually I was introduced to what gang intervention work is.
0: You said that you wanted to get out of the gang because you had a son. I wonder what it's like for other gang members because it's so much a part of their identity. It is power. In some cases, it's kind of everything that you have. What do you say to gang members in L.A. who are reluctant to get out because they don't have anything else to go to?
12: You know, we have hundreds, hundreds of kids that come through our office every year you know, seeking tattoo removal, seeking different opportunities. Actually, that's some a good the, point
0: right there, because the tattoo identifies you as a gang member in some cases. And I saw this when I was at your office in Los Angeles. There are people who are tattooed throughout their body with gang insignias. And so what you're doing is to helping to fund the removal of those tattoos.
12: Uh, yes. And you're not just shedding your skin. You're shedding your inside of your heart, you know, because you believed in something so much that you were Willing to give your life or kill for letters and numbers, and now you've gotten to a place where you realize that what that meant wasn't who you are, and you need to be guided to understand the process that it takes to to uh, changing your mindset about what you believe so much in.
0: Alex, do you mind my asking how old your son is now?
12: My son just graduated from high school. I have three other children. You know, one just turned one year old.
0: To what extent, though, I wonder, do you feel like in L.A., the lure of gangs is still there for people like your kids?
12: I had to fight all the time with my sons, you know, because they were so attractive to the the music, the movies, the glamorizing of gangs. And, you know, I had to really be on top of it and, you know, always had to tell them my experience in it, even Playing with guns, toy guns, was forbidden. And sometimes they hated me. You know, I hated those violent video games, you know, that puts ideas into the kids' heads, you know. And, and I think that my might have been too harsh on them, but it was my fear of them making the same mistakes that I did.
0: Alex Sanchez, executive director of Homies Unidos, which is a Los Angeles-based group that works with street gangs from El Salvador. He is a former member of the gang MS-13. Alex, good luck.
12: Thank you, and good luck to you.
0: To a different kind of fight in California now, this one over the popular Asian delicacy Shark Fin Soup. The fins are hacked off live sharks. The sharks are then dumped back into the sea to die. California recently banned the shark fin trade as inhumane, but now that law is being challenged. Leaders in San Francisco's Chinatown say the ban is the result of anti Asian bias. Monica Campbell prepared this report.
7: My God, look at this. There must be
1: thousands of them here. That celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay on British TV, aghast at a stockpile in China of small gray shark fins. They're used in shark fin soup, an ancient Asian delicacy found worldwide, traditionally at special occasions. The fin is actually tasteless, but when boiled down, it adds a stringy, chewy texture to a delicate broth. A bowl of it can run up to $50 or $350 for a pound of dried shark fin. But there's growing worry about the shark business and what's known as finning.
7: What it means is that the fins of the shark are removed at sea and the body is dumped
3: at sea.
1: Peter Knights runs WildAid, a San Francisco-based group out to protect the tens of millions of sharks killed yearly. He helped get China to ban shark fin soup from its government banquets and persuaded California lawmakers to ban the shark fin trade altogether. Other states are doing the same.
7: The shark fin trade is a huge multinational business. It's devastated shark populations, and something's got to change, otherwise there'll be no sharks left.
10: My name is Michael Kwong. I'm the manager at Hot Blue Shark Fins Company in San Francisco.
1: Michael Kwong imports and distributes thousands of fins throughout America. Kwong says he already follows federal laws, which let him bring ashore a whole shark to sell its meat, skin, and fins. But California's new law, in a move to stop the fin trade cold, makes it illegal for Kwong to possess the profitable fin.
10: You're talking to me. I'm one small entrepreneur in the city and county of San Francisco. There are lots of people out there who will flaunt the law. Basically, this law has forced the shark fin industry to go
12: underground.
1: That remains to be seen. But one thing for sure is that the anti-finning chorus in the U.S. is growing.
12: What if you could see how shark fin
6: soup is made?
1: Celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio and basketball's Yao Ming are trumpeting the need to save sharks.
6: Remember, when the buying stops, the king can too.
1: But some say California's law is biased. At a Chinatown cafe, Taylor Chow, a seafood dealer, says the law discriminates. He says it's easy to target shark fins because only a minority in America connects with the food.
12: Uh, my memory with Sha Su is uh, the family gathering, good time. When you say your, your people um uncivilized, uh, barbarian, I cannot accept that. We don't want to be the scapegoat for the problem of the war.
1: It's about conservation, not race, says Paul Fong, the Chinese-American assemblyman behind the ban.
12: We had to treat it like ivory. It, it's impossible to track it. It's just easier to ban it. I mean, it's like... A, foot binding that, that was outgrown, and uh, we can outgrow this as well.
1: Meanwhile, chefs are offering one solution, fake fin.
3: Rogers. Get yeah, a second.
1: Meet Corey Lee, the young chef-owner of San Francisco's exclusive Banu restaurant. His dish?
10: It's a variation on a, on a traditional Cantonese version of a shark fin soup. The interesting thing about what we serve is that the actual shark fin is faux. So there's a tang or a broth that's made with chicken and jinhua ham, Shaoxing wine, and it's also served with a black shuffle custard because we need to introduce that luxury back into the dish.
1: Chef Lee's faux fin is part of a $180 tasting menu. Maybe you'd see chefs creating alternatives to endangered ingredients who stand to make the legal killings in the culinary world. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in San Francisco.
0: Our geoquiz today takes us to a suburb of Copenhagen. The Danish capital has a reputation as a cycling haven. In fact, its urban planning is based on the needs of cyclists. There's even a word for it, Copenhagenization. And the government wants to encourage suburban commuters to bike to work. The first target is a town about 10 miles west of the capital on the island of Zeeland. It's the end point for a new bicycle superhighway to the capital. Can you guess the name of this Danish suburb? The answer's coming up in just about a minute. You're listening to PRI.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Coming up, an Iranian musician wants to rock the Koran. We're going to answer our geo-quiz first, though, today. The suburb of Copenhagen we're looking for is Albertslund. It's the first route in a network of 26 bicycle superhighways that will connect the capital to its suburbs. Now, this is a country that has nearly twice as many miles of bike paths as it has coastline. And Fritz Braydale from the Danish Cyclists' Federation says this extension is only the beginning. We spoke to him from Copenhagen's Queen Louise Bridge, which 40,000 cyclists cross every day, is as they're not creating bike superhighways from scratch.
7: The superhighways, it's an English term which doesn't completely translate. It's not like they built a, a whole new bike lane along the suburb of Alberton into the city of Copenhagen. They've taken existing uh, stretches of bike lane and connected them and made sure that mostly you don't have to stop in front of uh, red lights, you can just go all the way continuously.
0: Now, in addition to bypassing traffic and red lights, cyclists have access to air pumps every mile, and there are footrests at designated stopping points. These perks are just some of the ways that Denmark encourages the biking culture. It's common to see everybody from businessmen in suits to young women dressed up for a night out on the town using bikes to get around
7: what's unusual about the danish bike culture is that it's so normal as opposed to most other countries where you either bike to exercise or you bike as a political statement to show you want sustainable transportation in denmark it's not a statement to to bike. the overwhelming uh, reason people bike here in Copenhagen is simply because it's nice and easy, it's convenient.
0: While biking may be more convenient than waiting for a crowded bus, the sheer number of cyclists in the city can lead to other problems, bike traffic.
7: You do have an enormous number of people and it's uh, sometimes uh, you have to uh, fight for your Right, and for your space on the bicycle lane here, it's uh, there's simply a certain degree of bike congestion.
0: But Braydale considers it a small price to pay. In fact, he's looking forward to welcoming even more cyclists to the city.
7: The superhighways are just beginning now, will be expanding, and we are convinced that it will help even more people to bike to work. You have to remember that uh, with the new electrical bikes, which are also becoming more and more popular. You can easily bike like 20, 25 or 30 kilometers from one of the suburbs into the uh, city center of Copenhagen.
0: That's Fritz Bradale from the Danish Cyclists' Federation. Finally today, Iranian musician Mohsen Namjou does not sing songs of loud protest. His music is more subtle than that. Even so, the Iranian government doesn't like it. They've banned his music. They call it satanic. So now Mohsen Namju makes his music in the United States. Shuka Kalantari has the story.
11: Mosem Namji was waiting for me on his friend's porch in East Oakland. We sit down to talk before officially starting our interview. Namji wants to make sure we are hamohang, or of the same song. That's the Iranian way of saying, let's make sure we're on the same page. There are some things he doesn't want to talk about, like Iran's president or its nuclear program. His concern is understandable. Namju faces a prison sentence in Iran for writing this song.
2: The song
11: is called Shams, meaning sun in Arabic yeah, uh, Namju mixes Western uh, rock music and, uh, with verses from uh, the Quran we, 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 which can be kind of sensitive we, 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 in a conservative Islamic Republic
2: I wasn't looking for any message especially from Quran. In support that or opposite of that, for me, just the form and the rhythm was important. And Quran is uh, has absolutely beautiful lyrics. Quran as an artwork is unbelievable.
11: Iranian officials didn't agree. They said Namju was using the Quran in an unorthodox manner. So in 2009, shortly before the Green Movement protests broke out, he was tried convicted, and sentenced to five years in prison. Luckily, he wasn't in Iran at the time. He was producing an album in Treviso, Italy, when he heard the news.
2: I wasn't sad about being named as Satan. It was a joke for me. But uh, to get this news that I'm not going to be in Iran anymore, it was very, very sad. And I can remember the first night, I was just crying until sunrise.
11: Namju has never gone back. He knew government officials there didn't like his music because they didn't let him release most of his albums in Iran. But he never thought his music would land him in jail. His first album, Toranj, is a fusion of 13th and 14th century Persian poetry and classic rock.
2: Famous rock melodies by Deep Purple, by Leonard Cohen, or by many, many other musicians. But the lyrics was by old Iranian poets. Like Hafez, Sadi, Attar, and the others.
11: The song Rusar is a famous Rumi poem set to music inspired by Stevie Ray Vaughan.
2: Rusar Bene, Bebo Lean, Tanho Maro, Raho, Tarke Man, Kharo Bene, Shabgardem of Dem Talok, Moy Momo, Shabta Beru Beru Sotanho.
11: Iran's government gave the album a mixed review. Namju got permission to release the CD, but the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance also banned it. Namju says his publisher must have cut a deal with government officials because he never made any money from the album.
2: In uh, or, uh, 2007, Toranj was the best seller between all albums in Iran. But I got nothing as benefit of that.
11: Namju's new album, 13.8, will be released next month. He says immersing himself in music helps him deal with the pain of missing his family, especially his mom. Namju says he talks to her on the phone, and sometimes she tries to talk him into giving up his music, so that maybe one day he could return to Iran without going to jail.
2: Even now, right now, when I'm talking to my mother, uh, she's just hoping to maybe change my field and change my life to work as a doctor or engineer. or...
11: Or anything but an Iranian rock star. For The World, I'm Shuka Kalantari, East Oakland, California.
0: You can see a music video from Mosanamju Namju at theworld.org from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins and we're back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. macfound.org.
6: PRI Public
3: Radio International.